anyway. Okay, we're in Psalm 81, and I think we're back on track. Thank you for your patience. Uh, after today, we will have two more Psalms, 82 and 83, and then uh, that'll take us up to Labor Day, and after Labor Day, we'll start with the Gospel of John, okay? Okay, so Psalm 81 deals with the issues of faithfulness and blessing, and you're going to see that throughout this psalm. And uh, the psalm focuses particularly on the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Also known as the Feast of Booths. The Jewish people call it Sukkot. Now, I know a little bit about this because when I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, there were about a half a dozen Jewish families on my block. And at a certain time every year, in their backyard, they would erect a shack, a booth. And for a full week, these people would live in the booth rather than in the house. And my next-door neighbor would build a booth every year. And uh, she was an immigrant from Russia, came after the revolution, and she was a white Russian and an Orthodox Jew, and she and her family uh, built a booth, and they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a celebration of Israel leaving Egypt and heading toward the promised land, and during those 40 years, they had to live in tents or booths. So it commemorated that journey to the promised land, and especially God's provision during that journey. The thing that amazed me when this was going on, and I was a teenager, I did not have any inclination or curiosity to ever ask them why they had lived in a booth for that week. This shows you the, about the size of my brain when I was growing up. I had no interest, no curiosity. I just knew they did it. <laughs> and for some reason it seemed normal to me because there were six or seven families on the block that lived in booths. And I thought, hey, that's pretty neat. I'd like to have a tent in my backyard and you know, sleep there at night. My parents wouldn't let me do it. So anyway, that's what Psalm 81 is about, the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'm going to give you the outline for the chapter, and then we'll jump in verse by verse. The first section is in verses 1 through the middle of verse 5. We'll call it 5a, 1 through 5a. And this is a summons to celebrate the feast, a summons to celebrate the feast. Uh, this, we'll call this an invitation, okay, an invitation. The next section, which is the end of verse 5 through 16, is an oracle from God. God speaks directly to the people. We'll call this an exhortation. So we have an invitation and we have an exhortation. Okay, And in this exhortation, he reminds his people uh, about the past. And they're called to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and how they were disobedient to that call. And then that reminder is intended to uh, motivate the psalmist audience, the ones who are reading this psalm, to be obedient and start celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? So you with me at this point? 
So let's look at this first section, the summons to celebrate or an invitation. Now look at verse 1. The psalmist says, this is the invitation, sing aloud to God our strength. This describes vocal praise, okay, vocal praise. The object of our vocal praise is the God of our strength, which means either the God who empowers us or the God who acts on our behalf, the God who does that which is impossible. So we are to praise God because he interacts with our lives and does things that are unbelievable. That's the invitation. Also in verse 1, he says, make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob or the God of Israel. And so they are to uh, worship God enthusiastically. Notice loud, joyful shout, enthusiastically. Now look at verse 2. This is still the invitation. Still the summons. Raise a song and strike the tremble, which is uh, the tambourine. In other words, uh, allow the, these praises to be accompanied by music. Some of your translations say raise a psalm. A psalm is always lyrics that are accompanied by music. Okay, And then it says at the end of verse 2, and raise a song, not only strike the tremble, but the pleasant harp and the lute. So you're in, to include tambourines and the strings. Okay, So what you have here is vocalization in verse 1, okay? orchestration in verse 2. You see that? When vocalization is added to orchestration, then you have jubilation. And that's what you have. This is a call to, for jubilant worship. In other words, what he's saying to these people, and he's, remember, he's writing to his audience. He's saying to them, strike up the band. This is a time for celebration, is what he's calling out to the people. Now, when is this celebration to take place? Look at verse 3. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon. Uh, the word blow the trumpet, the phrase blow the trumpet, refers to the shofar or the ram's horn. And when you blew a trumpet, that called the people to assemble together for worship. When were they to do this? At the new moon. That's the first of the month. Okay, first of all, strike up the band at the first of the month. Okay? Now look what else it says there in verse 3. That's at the new moon. At the full moon on our solemn feast day. You need to strike up the band not only the first of the month, but you need to strike up the band on the full moon, which is the 15th of the month, but it's not every 15th of the month. What is it? The 15th of the month, the full moon of what? What's it say there? Of our feast day. Do you see that? There's a certain 15th of the month that's designated as a feast day, and that's the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? Now, you see this over in Leviticus. So mark your Bible here and turn to Leviticus, and I'll show you <coughs> what the Scripture says about the Feast of Tabernacles. And you'll see how this fits in with the psalm. And there are several passages in the Bible regarding the Feast of Tabernacles, but I'm going to show you just one, okay? So look at Leviticus chapter 23. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And when you get to chapter 23, go down about two-thirds to verse 33. 
Leviticus 23 and verse 33. And notice what it says. You ready? Here's what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses way back, long before the psalm was written. At the Exodus, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, On the, look at this, 15th day of the seventh month, shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. So it's going to be a seven-day feast. It starts at the full moon or the 15th day of the seventh month. Now look down at verse 39. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall reap, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, And on the eighth day of Sabbath rest, all the other time is a time of celebration. Notice it's a harvest feast. Do you see that? It's when the crops are brought in, when the crops are reaped. Now look over at verse 41. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute. Now this is very important, okay, because you're going to see this in the psalm. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. In other words, as long as you live. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Why? Here's the purpose. That your generation may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. And so this is the Feast of Tabernacles. And as far as I know, Jews today who are Orthodox, not not Reformed, not conservative, but the Orthodox Jews, this season will be erecting booths in their backyard, and it goes on from generation to generation. Okay? Now go back to Psalm 81. That is the summons. That's what the psalmist is calling his people to do is to celebrate this feast of tabernacles. Now, Israel had certain appointed days when they were to worship. Okay? In other words, these were required. The first day was the Sabbath. Every Saturday, every seventh day, the Jews were to worship on the Sabbath. They were also to worship every first moon of the month. They were to stop and they were to worship. That involved, for them, that involved making sacrifices. And then there were three appointed feasts that God demanded that they observe. One was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for seven days. Passover, you've heard of Passover? And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a seven-day feast. The Feast of Weeks, they had to celebrate that. We know it as Pentecost. And then they had to celebrate the Feast of Booths, okay? And that's what this psalm is all about, the Feast of Booths. It's amazing, isn't it? When you, when you get the background, you understand it, you'll see how these psalms sort of come to life, okay? So, what are they to do? Praise God. When are they to do it? The Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Why are they to do it? Look at verse 4. Because this is the statute for Israel 
Remember, that's what I told you to remember back in that other verse. This is the statute of Israel, a law of God, of Jacob, for Israel. So God decreed it, and they were to observe it. Why were they to observe it? They were to observe it every year as a reminder that God provided for them during their trek from Egypt to the promised land. We need reminders. We need times of special days that we observe. In evangelical circles, and I would throw in, you know, Baptists in this category, Nazarenes in this category, you know. In evangelical circles, unfortunately, we do not have special days on our calendar that we celebrate. That's a weakness in evangelicalism. Israel had certain days where they worshipped. Now, in the more liturgical churches, you know what I mean by liturgical churches? The ones where people wear robes and, you know, they they do follow what's called a liturgical calendar. And uh, here is a, a book I picked up at Half Price about two weeks ago. And this is the liturgical calendar that Catholics follow. Greek Orthodox follow, Episcopal follows, Lutherans follow, many Methodists follow, special designated days. For example, Advent. You ever hear of the season of Advent? First Sunday of Advent, second Sunday of Advent, third Sunday of Advent. There are certain things you do on those Sundays. Most of the Christians around the world follow that. Guess what we do? None of that. No. So, then you have the Christmas of season, uh, season of Christmas, that's three Sundays. The season of Epiphany, which includes ten Sundays and includes the Epiphany Sunday. And the tenth Sunday is the Transfiguration Sunday. And there are certain prayers that are offered, certain scriptures that are read on these days. Why, do, why would they uh, celebrate Transfiguration Sunday? Because they want to make sure at least once a year the church members remember that Jesus was transfigured before Moses and Elijah and Peter and John. Remember that? And James. And the significance of that. And that's how they guarantee their people understand the Gospels and the Scriptures. And then you have the seasons of Lent. You're familiar with that? First one is Ash Wednesday. That was a day. Hey, you know what Ash Wednesday is like? That's significant for some people. We look at it, what do we do? But you see, that's significant. And why? Because it talks about the importance of fasting. It talks about the importance of, of putting our body under subjection. It talks about self-denial. See, We need to be reminded of that. Otherwise, all you have in Baptist churches are People who indulge, you know, season of Lent, season of Easter. The, the uh, sixth week in Easter is called Ascension Sunday. That's where you remember the Lord ascended. And what does it mean that he ascended? And what does it mean for us that he ascended? The seventh Sunday of Easter is the day of Pentecost, Pentecost Sunday. 
That's a very, see, you see how they're learning the scriptures through these key events? And then you have the season of Pentecost, and the first Sunday of that is called Trinity Sunday. That's where the people are taught about the Trinity. This is on their calendar, just like the Jews had days on their calendars to remember certain things. There's a Christian calendar. We should be remembering key events. The Israelites remembered key events in their nation. We should remember key events in the life of our church. The last Sunday of Pentecost, the season of Pentecost, is Christ the King Sunday, which celebrates Christ as reigning over the universe. And then it goes on, and there's other days, the days of Annunciation, All Saints Day. You familiar with all these? See, these are on church calendars. And the liturgical churches do this, and Israel did the exact same thing. Now look at verse 5. This he established, this, this rule that you are to have these special days, and in this case, the day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This he established in Joseph, which represents Israel. Joseph, when... When uh, the children of God were in Egypt, Joseph was the one who led them in a sense. He was the father of Israel during that time. This he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went through the land of Egypt. So here is the summons for the audience who the psalmist is writing to to start participating in the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we come to the second part, the oracle from God, which is an exhortation. Here God begins to speak directly to the people through, in this case, the psalmist who is serving as a prophet. He speaks on behalf of God. And I want you to notice how the pronouns change in verse 5. Notice in the middle, in verse 5, it says, he established when he went through the land. But now at the end of verse 5, notice what it says. I heard a language I did not understand. Do you see that? Now God is speaking. He said, and guess what? I proclaimed this when I heard a language that I did not understand. Because here were the Jews and they were in a foreign land among people who spoke a strange language who never spoke to God. They had other gods they spoke to. They never spoke to God. And he says, I called out Israel in a land where I did not understand the language. And then look what it says in verse 6. He reminds them of something. God says, I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. He's talking about how he delivered Israel, who he calls his sons who he calls Joseph, in a sense. And he says, I delivered Israel from the burdens on their backs and from the, the baskets, which were the clay pots that they had to carry, had rods that went across their shoulders and big baskets or clay pots where they, that they filled up with bricks. And that's how the Israelite slaves built things like the pyramids. And he said, I delivered them from that, that labor. Look at verse 7. He said, you called in trouble. And I delivered you. I answered you. 
in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Now, notice there's five eyes in there. Do you see that? Look at that. End of verse 5. I heard, verse 6. I removed, verse 7. I delivered, verse 7. I answered, verse 7. I tested you. I heard you when you cried. And then I did all these things, and we know how he led them out. But one of the things that we might be a little shaky on is that last eye. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. When he delivered Israel, and they got in, they were on their trek through the wilderness, they began to question God. And uh, they started complaining to Moses. And they said, we don't like our circumstances. They forgot so quickly what the circumstances were in Egypt. And uh, they said, uh, you know, is the Lord with us or not? At least he would give us something to drink. And God, see, they were complaining. You know what God was doing? He was testing them. He was testing their faith to see whether they would depend upon him or not. And when they complained, God told Moses, okay, here's what I want you to do. Get your rod and what? Strike that rock, remember? And the water came forth. God showed himself strong in verse 1. See, That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is. It's praising God who shows himself strong. And so God was testing them. He said, I heard you. And then guess what he said? Now you hear me. See, and that's why he's speaking here. Look what he says in verse 8. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you will listen to me. And so here he calls upon his people to listen to him. He said, I heard you, now you hear me. Remember when what happened at 9-11? Remember when President Bush stood up? He said, we hear you. Remember when he said that? He said, now you hear me. God said, I hear you. I delivered you. Now you hear me. Here's what he said. I will admonish you, O Israel. When he says hear me, that means hear and obey. And I will admonish you, O Israel, if you will listen to me, if you will listen to me, I'm going to give you some instructions here. And here are the instructions that he expects them to hear and to follow. There shall be no foreign god among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So the first thing he admonishes them to do is give him absolute allegiance. Don't worship idols. That's what he tells them to do, and the reason is because he brought them out of Egypt. It wasn't any idol that brought them out. Never put an idol before you. Don't ever have an idol in your midst. Because once you put an idol in your midst, it's an amazing thing what happens. It gets control over you. You figure, well, God didn't answer my prayer today, so I'm gonna maybe, maybe the idol. Let's, let's just give it a try. Look what's happened in the countries where, for example, in England and even in the United States, where people from other religions have been allowed into our country, let's say like Muslims, what's happening in England right now? 
It's not just the Muslims who are worshiping Allah. But guess what? Now you have people who are citizens of Great Britain starting to worship Allah. You have converts. See, it has a life of its own. And what God says here is, look, I only want you to worship me. Do not allow any foreign gods or idols to come into your presence. And he says, if you do that, I'm going to give you a promise. Look what he says at the end of verse 10. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean uh, open your mouth wide, and I'll fill it with praise? Does he mean open your mouth wide, and I will fill it with prophecy? Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it with preaching? Well, you know, he might mean, it could mean that, and I don't, I'm not sure, but I'm going to give you another option. I wouldn't bet my pay on it. But since this is a psalm about the Feast of Tabernacles and how God provided for the people in their wilderness, maybe it's if you open your mouth, I'll what? I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. I mean, after all, he just said he gave them something to drink, didn't he? Did he also give them thing, other things in the wilderness? Yeah, did he give them bread from heaven? Did he give them quail? We're not sure whether it means if you open your mouth, I will, you will begin to praise me if you obey me, or I will take care of your needs. Maybe it's, it's both. I'm not sure. Now look at the response. <coughs> he sort of gives them a little history lesson. He says, but my people would not heed my voice. Notice that's in the past. Verses, uh, you know, 8 through 10 is, speaking to the people right there in the present, speaking to us as well. But then he goes back and he said, that was the same promise I gave to them, but guess what, in verse 11, but my people would not heed my voice. They didn't listen to me. They were disobedient. They even had idols, didn't they? Look. And look what else it says there in verse 11. And Israel would have none of me. Look at that. Israel would have none of me. See, with God, it's all or none. You can't ride the fence with God. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You can't be Mr. In-Between. You know, I'll live this way one day and this way another. I'll, I'll trust God here and I'll trust. You can't have two. You can't trust the idols. You can't trust the foreign gods and God. It's all of God or none of God. And when you trust the idol, guess what? You're not trusting God. You're not having any of God. Even though you say you are, even though you're giving lip service to him, you're really not. you got a fallback position. See? And so God says that's what they did. And so look what he did. Verse 7. So I gave them over to their own stubborn hearts. I gave them over to their own stubborn hearts to walk in their own counsels. And walk they did. They walked 40 years in circles. That's where their own counsels got them. 11-day journey from Egypt to the Promised Land took them 40 years. Instead of following God's counsel, they followed their own counsel. Notice what he says there in verse 12. I gave them over. Sounds a lot like Paul in Romans. That's what he says. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. 
They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image of corruptible man and birds and four-footed things. In other words, idols. They started worshiping idols. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanliness and all these different things. They changed the truth of God for a lie. And listen to this. For this reason, God gave them up. And then verse 28 says, they continue to do these things. And even as they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. Look, Psalm 81, to a corrupt mind. You see that? That's what Paul says. That's Paul's commentary on Israel's journey throughout the wilderness. Says the exact same thing here. That was Romans chapter 1. Paul's giving a commentary on how the Israelites turned away from God and followed their own conscience. You know. Look at verse 13. We have God's desire here. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Look, that's his desire. That's his yearning. That's his heart. Can you feel his heart there? Feel the emotion? Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But what? You would not. You would not. See, here's God's desire, and here is their response. That's true of every generation. Here's what God desires, that his people would listen to him, meaning obey him, that Israel would walk in my ways. See, there's the word walk again. In verse 12, they walked in their own counsel. Verse 13, he wants them to walk in his ways. That's his desires, but they walked in their own counsel. Very interesting, isn't it? Look at verse 14. I would soon, and here's what would happen if they walked in his ways. I wish that you'd walk in my ways. See? And here's what he'd do. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. This is his guarantee. If you walk in his ways, he'll take care of your enemies. That's why he's the God of your strength in verse 1. See? You walk in his ways and the enemies come against you, he'll deliver the knockout punch. All you have to do is just keep on moving. Remember Jesus' enemies? They come after him. Jesus would walk right on through. God opened the door for Jesus to walk right through his enemies. That's what Paul said. He says, God's for us, what? Who can be against us? See? So that's what he says in verse 14. I would soon, when would he do it? Later? No. Sooner rather than later. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. Look at verse 15. And the haters of the Lord would pretend Submission to him. Now, this is the commentary of the psalmist. God stopped speaking in the first person. Notice now it goes back to third person. The haters of the Lord would be in submission to who? Him. You see that? So now the psalmist is saying, and you know what happened? After God defeated their enemies, you know what would happen? Here's what would happen. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him. And uh, that's exactly what happens because when, when God's people, like King David, was able to subdue his enemies, when God intervened and David took over all this land, guess what the enemies did? They bowed down and they worshiped God, but not with their heart. They were pretenders. They were fakers. See? 
Right now we have over in the Middle East a group of Muslims trying to force Christians to convert to Islam. You've been following that story? And if they don't, what do they do? Cut their heads off. Well, if you don't want your head cut off, what will you do? You might bow down, right? Now, there's two things that are happening. Some people are getting their heads cut off. Said, no, I'm not going to do that. They die. Others, guess what? They bow down, but they're not really submitting to Allah. They're just sort of faking it. And this is describing people who have been submitted, forced to submit. In other words, they've been defeated by the Israelites because God's defeated the enemy. And notice how they're described in verse 15. They're described as the haters of the Lord. You see that? But look what they do. They're hating the Lord, but they pretend to submit to him. You see this? And then look at the end of verse 15. He says, but their fate would endure forever. In other words, their fate's sealed. God really knows their hearts. So we see that this is a promise that God makes. This is the condition. If they were sincere, if the enemy was sincere, in other words, Israelite was obedient, they worshiped God, they kept the Feast of Tabernacles, they were a light to the nations, the nations actually came in, submitted to God with a full heart, he would have treated them just as he treated his own people. In fact, that's what verse 16 says. He would have fed them, notice them, that's the haters, but now they're really converted. He would have fed them also with the finest wheat. If they were sincere, God would have taken care of them as well. Now, wheat would be like necessities. But notice what kind of wheat. The best wheat. He would have really taken care of them. So, if it was a genuine conversion, he would have taken care of those people who were formerly his enemies. If it was a fake conversion, they just pretended their fate is sealed. So, the psalmist is just sort of throwing that in for his audience to understand. Then at the end of verse 16, he again goes into a prophetic mode and God speaks through him. And now again, you notice the change of pronoun. And notice what it says. And the honey from the rock. I would, with the honey from the rock, I would have satisfied who? You. Notice the beginning of verse 16. I would have fed them. That's the converts. But look here. From the honey of the rock, I would have fed you. If bread represents necessity, honey represents luxury. And here is God providing for his people their necessities and even more honey that would be stored, made, produced by the bees in the clefts of the rocks. And some of you have been over in Israel and you've seen cracks and rocks where bees go in. They actually... God would said, I would provide for you. Because this is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is all talking about God's provision. See? God is a God who provides. See? And you would have been satisfied. Now, that's what happened in the past. This is what God desires for us now. Now, unfortunately for Israel, it never happened. They just, they didn't obey God. <laughs> they didn't listen to him. But it's not too late for us. Because here we discover, and it's not too late for the psalmist audience, the original audience, the people that he was writing to. Even if they were disobedient up to the time this psalm was written, 
This time could have changed them. They could have repented. They could have found forgiveness. It was available to them right then. God would start taking care of their necessities. God would start giving them their luxuries. All they had to do was just get back in line, start obeying God, start praising God, start keeping the feast of the tabernacle, put God first and foremost in their lives. And it's the same with us. When we do this, he takes care of us. Here's what Paul said. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's his desire, to give us all things, provide us with everything that we need, and then some. And I think the reason many of us are not experiencing these all things is because we don't give him all things. Now, I want to give you a suggestion. I think if you want to see God really bless your life, if you'll set aside certain times, just like Israel did, certain times, to totally focus on God, not focus on yourself, not focus on your work, not focus on your family, but just focus entirely on him, you would be fulfilling his desire of this passage. Last week I met with a man for lunch, a professor from another school, and he showed me a book. He, re- he, he belongs to an organization called the Order of St. Luke. And it's a worldwide order from people of all denominations. And I said, well, I want to know more about this. And he showed me a book. And it was a book called The Daily Offices. And I said, well, tell me what this is. And he opened it up, and he showed me. And it sort of follows sort of like this liturgical calendar, but it's not part of that. It's something different. And she said, week number one, Monday. And it said, you know, Here's a, here's a hymn that you might want to sing. Here's a, a prayer that you might want to say for this week. Uh, here's a reading, you know, that you should have. Here's a day when we should be fasting. And these are called daily offices. And he says everybody in our order follows these da- daily offices. And what we're doing just as we make sure that our physical needs are met, we are forming our spirits to be like Christ. He says, we follow the daily offices. And I thought, you know, the closest thing we ever had to something like this is a quiet time. Well, you know, we'll get some devotional, and we'll read it and think about it for a few minutes. But this was, you know, had several things, a hymn, a prayer, a scripture reading, you know, devotional reading, a meditation, what to think on that day, you know, different requests. I said, man, this is really Interesting. He said, yeah. He said, because each person looks at it, reads the scriptures, meditates on the scriptures, prays. He says, we have this whole thing, these daily offices. And then I got into Psalm 81. And I said, well, this is sort of like what they were doing in Israel. They had this calendar where they did these certain things. And, you know, I think I might want to adopt something like that where God becomes my focus 
for a period of time, and I've touched upon all these daily events, these daily activities that form my spirit, we may well say. So this is a psalm about God's provision for those who set aside certain time to focus entirely on him. Next week, we'll deal with Psalm 82, which is a plea for justice. And then the following week, our last psalm of the psalm. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, this passage that speaks to us when we examine our own lives. And many of us never examine our lives. We, are not, we don't have examined lives. We just live as sort of victims of time and circumstances, catch-as-catch can. And Lord, but when we think about it, you set aside time throughout the year where your people were to focus on certain things and remember certain things. And, and we see how in the broader world of Christianity today, there are groups of people doing this same thing. And even on a daily basis, oh Lord, help us to inspect our own lives, make new commitments. Help us, Lord, to be people who focus on you, that we can receive your provision and then praise you. We can have a time of jubilation. In Christ's name, amen.